welcome to Hacker Public Radio. My name is Soak. Programming 101, Part 4. The Game of Life. First up, more feedback. Asset Flux sent me an email. I will skip some of it, like the praise. I did like his line about, I do not have the time or the testicular fortitude required to spread the good word, though. He mentions I skipped saying the brackets and the print statements. Thinking back, I probably did, although I believe I got the sample code right each time because I checked. I ran all of them correctly to make sure I was saying the right thing. I probably just said print X, meaning print, open brackets, quotes, X, quotes, close brackets, but skipped some of it because print X is easier. So I apologise if that confused anyone. He also says that my terminology is a bit confusing. I call brackets as brackets, whilst technically this is correct, there are square brackets and greater and less sans and so on. So we've got shift 9 and shift 0 for brackets, and then we have the two keys to the right for the P, for the open square brackets and close square brackets. We've also got the open curly brackets, close curly brackets there, and the greater than less than on the comma and the dot, full stop or period, if you're in America. He does mention a bit more about why this would be a problem, but I will not confuse you with discussions about lists and tuples and such. To clarify, I do call shift 9 and shift 0 brackets, not parentheses, as I have mentioned in the previous episode. The ones to the right of P, the ones that look like you've taken a square, split it down the middle, I would call left and right square brackets or open and close square brackets to distinguish them and the, the comma and the dot less than and greater than sign I will call less than and greater than even though they're also brackets and if we do need the the shift and then the the ones to the right of the P I will call them curly brackets this lot may get a bit confusing so if you want to go head over to zoke.org and zoke.org forward slash python I have a list of all the show notes and my scripts and the code and the sample code and everything there. So go and have a look at that and see if that makes any more sense. And you can see how much I had lib like bits like this because they're not in the script. Anyway, this could just be that something I was used to at work because we were in Microsoft and Visual Basic shop where the brackets were most commonly used, you know, shift nine and shift zero. It wasn't C C didn't have curly brackets or anything like that. So that's what we all used, and I apologise if it confuses anyone here. Please refer to the example code I give, as that should make it a lot clearer. Todd emailed me and said he'd written a Game of Life programme, and he did attach it, but I haven't read it yet, not because I don't want to, but the same reason I'm not listening to the Elky Mantis's episodes. I don't want to mess up what I'm doing. I want to write my Game of Life and do my Python process podcasts without stealing all the ideas, either intentionally or unintentionally, from other people. So Todd, I will be checking this code out after I've finished the game of life. So, when I've finished this episode and uploaded it, basically. One other thing, whilst I remember, a few people have said I speak too quickly. I have noticed as a whole, the English do speak faster than Americans, and with all the different accents... In the UK, it can cause issues, especially if you are a non-English as a first language listener. So I am intentionally trying to slow down. I do try and slow down anyway. I have done this since I came to America. It's not a problem around 
Mrs. Zoke or Minnie Zoke anymore because they know me. It's not a problem around her family. There are a few things like her sister will never really want to speak to me on the phone because she can't understand me. In person it's fine, but on the phone there's something that it causes issues there. I do notice sometimes I'll get excited and then I'll go really quick, really quickly, and no one gets any of that. So I'm intentionally trying to slow this down even more than normal, so hopefully it makes a lot of sense, because programming is confusing. Well, it's not that confusing, but it can be when you're trying to learn new processes. So I will try and slow this down. Again, as I said, zoke.org, I have the scripts that I write. So you can also look to that, and of course the Hacker Public Radio website will have the sample code, so you can go and look there, and hopefully it all makes sense. But if you have any questions, let me know. At the end of the episode, I give my feedback details. So just email me, let me know. Now, on with the Python. So, the game of life. Some of you will know the rules already, I'm sure. But for anyone who doesn't, they are. For a populated square with two or three neighbours, the plant lives. If there's not two or three neighbours, it dies from overcrowding or loneliness, or whatever you want to call it. For an unpopulated square with exactly three neighbours, a plant appears through pollination or whatever. That's it. You have a grid of whatever size you can make, any size grid, and then you seed plants in there, and then let it grow. It's that simple. So let's just think about this to begin with. It is always better to think about the code to begin with, rather than rushing headlong in and making harder code. If it's simple enough, you can do it, and if you're a good enough programmer, but most of the time you need to think about this and figure it out. So let's assume we're going to make a 10 by 10 grid, 100 squares in total. Actually we may want to change this later to be 80 by 25 to be the full console width and height, but as long as we do this right that won't matter. We can just create a variable and then change the variable, no big deal. So we'll have the current field which is what we're showing on the screen at the moment. We will need to run through this field to figure out what lives and what dies. But we will need to make a next year's field to show that, so we don't overwrite the current field and mess it up before we finish calculating what lives and dies. Then we need to copy the future field over to the current field, and then we're all ready to loop around again. So let's start by writing some pseudocode, i.e. words that aren't really code, but have the same loops and so on to make our life easier to code. Some of this will be a very high level, but we can expand this later. So we want to sort of you know, load the field in, run the simulation, and cycling around the new fields. Okay, exceedingly high level. But if you're not sure, write at high level and then expand later on. So let's expand the run simulation part. This is how you write something complicated. If you look at something and think, wow, how do I do that? Just split it down into smaller, smaller parts until you know what to do with So let's continue. So run through the current field. For each square, we need to count the neighbours and put the next year's crop into the future field. Copy the future field over to the current field. Still not hugely helpful, but we can start putting in some some code-like words in there. For each row, x for each row y, count up the neighbours, if current x, y is alive, if neighbours are two or three, future is alive, else future is dead, else if current x, y is dead, 
if the neighbors are three, future is alive, else future is dead. Then next X and next Y. Fairly simple, but that's looking a bit more like code. And we should see how the code will begin to flow. We can expand bits of it like the count up the neighbors section. That would become something like for current X minus 1 to plus 1, for current Y minus 1 to plus 1, if X, Y is alive, neighbors count plus 1, and then looping round. So that would loop around all the neighbours, but it would also count the current neighbour, so we would need to tweak that. Also, there is another problem that you may not have thought about. Have a little think and see if you can figure it out. Why can't we count from x is minus 1 to plus 1 to get the 9 by 9 grid? Just talk amongst yourselves, I'll just get a drink a moment. Right. The reason is there may not always be a 9 by 9 grid around the square. If we're on the edge, it won't be. If we are in the top left, for example, the very top left corner, we will only have three neighbours. The one to the right, the one down, and the one diagonally down to the right. The others are going to be off the edge of the field. Ups are gone, lefts are gone. There are a few ways we can get around this. We could add a bunch more code to check if we were on the edge and then check around the various places. However, I think that given almost all machines nowadays have a ton of memory, at least a gig, we will expand the field to be two wider and two longer. One extra one all the way around the edge. This makes us be able to avoid the extra code checks. It would use more memory. I'm going to do it this way to demonstrate this. So for a 10 by 10 grid, this would actually be quite a big overhead of memory. 100 squares, 10 by 10, would become 144, 12 by 12. However, for an 80 by 25 standard terminal dimensions, this would be 2,000 compared to 2,214, and would be less and less the more squares you add. Of course, if you wanted to run this on a website with hundreds of hits, you may want to take the hits in speed compared to the memory, if you're actually drawing it all on the server. So, something to be aware of, but don't lose sleep over it. Try to think of these problems, though, before you start coding. But any code that works, no matter how slow, is better than no program. Just remember, a program that works fast is better than both of those. Now, now that a lot of the pseudocode is done, although, yes, most of that was just to demonstrate it, I have written the Game of Life program before, and I'm aware so the best ways, or better ways of doing it. And I tend not to overcomplicate the pseudocode because I have got several years' worth of experience as a developer, so I don't have to drill down as much. If you want to continue and drill down and do your own one, please go ahead. But I mainly use it just to figure out any hard bits of the code, just make me think in the whole idea of how the code's working. But now we can start writing the actual program. To make it easier later, if we want to change the dimensions, we should make a variable with the height and width of the field. That way, to change it later, we simply go into the variables, which we should put at the beginning of the code, and make the changes. First up, we actually want to make this a runnable file. So we need to create a new file, and we'll call it gameoflife.py, and we'll give it executable permissions. To do this on Linux, in a terminal, in your code directory, or wherever you want to put the game of life.py, type in touch 
space gameoflife.py. The touch command, if you don't know, does two things. If the file doesn't exist, it creates a file, and it will make the creation timestamp of the file now if the file does exist. Then run chmod space u plus x, no spaces there, space gameoflife.py. The ch command, short for change mode, can change permissions. Now you can use the numbering system, so making a file 775 for example, but I really try not to do that because it does overwrite all of the permissions. If you get it wrong you've just screwed up the file permissions and I did that in my home directory once and it wasn't fun. I made permissions 600 or something and I forgot to say don't do directories so I took off executables status for all the directories and you couldn't move into any of them. I did a quick search on the net and found some code to actually fix that if you do an if file type dash d or something there's a say if it's a directory and that fixed it but that's why I'm really not a fan of using the numbering systems I do prefer to do the u plus x which is user executable permissions I find it easier that way this way you're simply adding in executable for users briefly as this isn't a bash scripting episode the U says change the user permissions, the plus says to add, and the X is executable. The file name then follows. To remove, you would use U minus X. If I recall correctly, the options are U for user, G for group, O for other, and then plus for add, minus for subtract, and R for read, W for write, to X for executable. You can man the chmod command for more information if you require. Now, if you're running Windows, I believe you should already have the execute permissions. So you just need to create the file. There are Windows versions of Touch, but it may be easiest just to open Notepad or similar, enter a single space, so you can save the file and save it. I don't have Windows handy with Python installed, so this may not be true. I did actually download a Windows RC7, uh, Windows... 7 RC whatever that one the new one that you can get for free for the next year and I may have a play around with that but at the moment I haven't tried so I don't know I imagine everyone listening to this can either figure it out themselves or don't need to because they're running Linux also I don't know if you can actually simply run the program or you need to call Python first if this really is an issue for someone let me know and I will investigate now we've created a file, we need to tell the computer how to run it. We have to do the shebang and point it towards Python 3. This is really simple, we just put hash pound octothorpe exclamation mark forward slash usr forward slash bin forward slash env space python 3. This does work fine for me, although depending on your version of Linux it may be Python 3.0 or similar. Basically we point it towards where Python is stored. On Ubuntu it knows where Python 3 is, so we can just put that in. You may need to put slash user slash bin slash Python 3.0 or something. Your mileage may vary, as they say. Now I do need to explain about a new type of, or rather an extension, of variable. So far we've only had single variables, one number, one string, and so on. Think of this like a single box, where we can store one thing in. 
Now we could set up the field with 100 different boxes, but how do we easily organize 100 boxes placed around randomly? How would you explain to someone how to find a specific box easily? So instead of having 100 different boxes, we're going to use what's known as an array, which is many boxes stuck together. Think of this like a row of cubby holes. You can explain to someone that there are cubbies on the back wall and they can see them. And you can then say, what you need is in the fourth cubby hole from the left, and we'll know exactly which one that is. This would be better than having the 100 boxes scattered around on the floor randomly. Arrays are basically like cubby holes. You can have a one-dimensional array, although that would just be a normal variable, a single cubby hole. A two-dimensional array would be a row of cubbies that are only one cubby high. A three-dimensional array is a row of cubbies several high and several long. You can continue this into as many dimensions as you wish, although if you want to know what they look like, you may have to ask Klaatu to explain the finer points of multidimensional space. Okay, just kidding about the Klaatu bit. It's a running joke about him being an alien from outer space. And I've sped up my speech, I'll slow it down again. We should set up a two-dimensional array, ten wide and ten deep, and that would be our field. In Python, however, you can't do arrays as such. I mean, you can make a list where, which is a one-dimensional array only. You can extend this using modules. But I don't want to talk about these extras yet, just sort of the basic vanilla Python, because I haven't even gone over lists yet. So we will have to be slightly creative here. We will make a list of length, width times height, and convert any XY coordinates onto that list. Slight pause here whilst I write the program, and then I will go through and explain it. I will also try to put a huge number of comments in to explain it. Anything slightly clever or not immediately obvious I tend to write a comment for. Just in case the next person who comes in and edits your code looks and doesn't spot the clever bit and breaks your code. For example, the SSH vulnerability, when they didn't clear the memory out to include randomness in the memory. I have not looked at the code, but I feel if there was a very big comment saying, warning, we do not blank the memory here to increase the entropy on it, do not change this, or something similar, the problem would not have occurred. The person changing it would have read through and, oh look, it says this, and then investigated into it. Just remember, if you don't amend the code within a few weeks, you do actually forget everything about it. This is just one of these weird things. You write a program, you move on to another program, you forget the first program you wrote, and you come back, and most long-term developers have actually done this. You look at it and say, what was the moron thinking were they doing? What the hell were they trying? Oh, wait, I did that. Oh, shit. So, we've all done that. It's quite a humbling thing when you realise you have no memory of writing the code. But it's one of these things, you, you know... The, the writing the code gets stuck in short-term memory or something and you forget it because it's just writing code. It's not actually something, the code itself, how you did it, you don't need to remember. It's, it's how you write the code, not what you wrote. So, you should write copious notes. So, for example, when I write the code, I will loop around a 3x3 three three grid to calculate neighbours. Because the easiest way to do this is two loops, looping from minus one to plus one, to pick up all the nine squares in the three by three grid. This count will be off by one if the middle spot has a plant in it. 
so I will write a note in the comments to point out that I am aware the count's going to be off, but I will fix it. And then when I correct for this, I will comment why I'm doing this and say, you know, as per earlier comment, overcount. That way it should be helpful if someone comes in and wonders if I realised it could overcount. In fact, one of my lecturers always said you should have more comments than actual code to explain it all. Now, sometimes code's obvious enough, so only a small comment is required, but if in doubt, put more comments in. Alright, well I think that slight pause was actually about two months, which is quite a big slight pause. Mainly because I kept rewriting bits of it as I didn't like it, and I'm still not in love with all this code. But it does work, and I think it's at least fairly good. I have made a few interesting choices, not necessarily because it's the best way, but because it demonstrates specific things. Because I am trying to teach you things here as well. So, without further ado, here is the code and the explanation. Go look at the code whilst I'm going through this, as I'm not going to read all the code out in full. In fact, I'm just going to say this bit does this, and around this line. So, go to the Hack Public Radio website, should find it there. In the show notes, go to zoke.org forward slash python forward slash four. I think this is going to be the fourth app. I will have my script there as well as the code and a link to the HPR episode itself. So go and have a look at that, look one of them, and go through it with me now. Okay, pound exclamation mark forward slash user bin end python three. As I said. I'm going to skip a lot of these. I'm not going to say forward slash user, forward slash bin, forward slash env. I'm just going to say enough so you know which line I'm talking about. So, user bin env, Python 3. That has to be at the top. This lets the computer know how to run the program. I then also have a huge amount of explanation at the beginning. I use hashes, which are comments within Python, as I've already explained, to put bits at the top, the license and so on and so forth. I put this code out under the GPL, although I'm not intending to, on creating a SourceForge project for it or anything. If someone else wants to, great, go ahead. I would like you to say that I wrote the original, but that's just pure politeness. I would also love it if you did updates to it and made it all fancy and shiny and websited to web 2.0 and I'm really probably going to not to a huge amount of updates. I'm going to do some updates to it over the next few months to demonstrate some more things, but I'm not going to do a huge amount of updates. I'm just going to put this out just as a complete demonstration and as it's one of the first, well, sort of the first big Python program I've written, I'm going to GPL it just because that'll make 3.30 happy. And maybe he won't be off next time on Cranks. The Git. After the license, I list all the modules. Now I split these up into sections by the hashes again just to make it easier to read so you can see what's going on. What When you're skimming through the code you can see that's modules, this is the license, this is variables, so on and so forth. So first up, modules. By default Python doesn't actually include a whole ton of things. There are a bunch of modules however which extend Python. In this case I add in random OS and time. The random module allows you to use random numbers. The OS module allows several things, but in this case we're going to use it to clear the screen. 
the time module allows us to use the sleep command to wait in between cycles so you can see it. So it doesn't just go bam, 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 and that's done. It will go bam, bam, bam. Next, I set up variables. Now, some of these I'm actually using as what's known as constants, i.e. I will not be changing them. But putting them here at the top means if you want to change any of them later, you know where they are. I should point out I'm trying to kind of use Hungarian notation. However, I couldn't actually find a formal list of the Hungarian names for Python, so I'm kind of making them up here based on some of the things we did where I used to work. So if someone does know of a formal list, I'd love to know. So things like i is an integer, s is a string, l at the beginning is a list, so an l i is a list of integers. Then you have the, that's in lowercase, you have the underscore, and then you have the actual thing in camel case. So, it, it makes sense to me, that's what I'm used to. But again, if someone's got a formula, this is a good way of doing it in Python, I'd love to know. I set up the width and height here. So if you want to amend it, you can simply do it here, and you save and rerun the program. You don't need to be digging through the code all the way. I also have the iterations and delay between them. And as I commented, this will greatly increase the time taken to run if you put them up too much, so really be careful. Next up is the fertility, which is how the program randomly fills the field. Changing these allows you to change how many plants are made. Too many and they will all die out from overcrowding. Too few will make them all die out from loneliness. I have it at about a third, a fraction under a third of the, the field is full. It seems to work quite well. Then we have the fields themselves. They don't really actually need to be here. The rest of them is actually sort of more setup files. But they were the only other big variables I use, except for a couple used only in a few lines, so I put them in there. Next are the functions. Functions are, are bits of code that can be called from anywhere within the program. Well, kind of, we'll... In C and... Visual Basic and things, you can get a bit more complicated when you have four or five different files to make a single program, but for all intents and purposes in Python, you have one file, and so you can call them from anywhere. I could have put these in the main part of the code and not actually have it as a function, but it's easier to keep the full amount of code for one section to be fairly small, making it easier to read. Functions are defined by using a def command, for define, of course, and then a name with brackets or parentheses. I still hate saying that word. You can pass information in to a function if you want by putting in local names inside the function. I am not here, which isn't actually necessarily the best way of doing it, but it does work. I had some issues trying to pass them in and broke it and had the wrong version and there's a couple of bugs in my program and I removed it and got it working so I never got around to putting them back in. Some programming languages do allow you to pass variables in by what they call reference and not actually allow it to change so you can pass a value in and it will always be the same value returned. Other programming languages don't allow this and I do need to read up and see if Python can actually do this, but I don't believe it can. I will check and confirm, though. 
functions do also allow you to return functions to the bit of the code that call it by using the return command. This can be useful if you want to tidy up some text, say, to export it. And you want to print it out and have the same thing at the beginning of the end, or, or you want to create an, a function, for example, that you can call add space on end, or similar, and you call it passing the text into it, and the function would add the space out onto the end and return the newly formatted string, or even print it out directly. You could also use the return say if the function worked right or errored. For example, a function called load config file could return an error if the config file was not found. Then you can check the return and handle it appropriately. So something like, for example, def f underscore load underscore config underscore file, open brackets s underscore file name, close brackets, some code to load the file in. If file found, whatever the requirements were. So if file found, return true, else return false. That way when you call the function, which I've started with an f to show it's a function, you can do something like if f underscore load config file equals equals false colon, some warning there. You could print a warning stating no file found, creating one, or using defaults, or depending on how you're going to use the config. Now, back to my Game of Life program. The first function makes the fields up. I use a function here not because it really needs to, but because it reduces the amount of code in the main section. If you'd made pseudocode beforehand, and you, have, you can have functions that refer to the pseudocode, and it makes it look nicer when reading through it, makes it more readable. And again, we're all about making it more readable. Think about it this way. If you're reading a book, they tend to split it up into chapters, paragraphs, sentences. They don't have one big chunk of everything in one or long line. That's what we're trying to do here. Break it out, make it easier to read. As I mentioned before, I, I am a big proponent for making it easier to read. I would actually write code that is actually slightly slower if it makes it easier to read, much, much easier to read. Mainly because computers are so fast nowadays, an extra millionth of a second makes no difference at all. The user is going to be sitting there if it takes him 2 seconds to print or 2.001 seconds or even 3 seconds, it's really not going to notice, be noticeable. When you're coming in to change it next time, Making it easier to read will be very noticeable. Anyway, I do have a huge comment bit here to explain how the function works, what the inputs and outputs are, and so on and so forth. Again, this just makes it easier for the next person editing the code. This was something we did where I used to work. You had sections of what's going on, even little version control bits in it, just mentioning what changes have been done. This is a fairly short function, it just loops around and appends an extra zero onto the end of the fields that we made earlier. This is so you can easily change the height and width of the field. Now the function does create one extra zero at the end, which is a small waste of resources. I did put a comment in here explaining this, but by now this code should make sense to everyone, with the possible exception of the dot append command. li underscore current field 
Li says it's a list of integers. Current field says it's the current field. And dot append open brackets zero brackets adds another cubby onto the end containing a zero. Yes, X and Y are not Hungarian, but they are simple counters. If you've ever done maths, X, Y, and Z are the three coordinates. X is width, Y is height, and Z is depth. Yes, maths, height, and Z, and not height, as people seem to say, which I don't understand because there's no H at the end, so it can't be height. But anyway... The field is two-dimensional, of course, so I'm using just X and Y here. Now, the final command would print out the length of the current field, but I commented it out. I was using it to debug a problem I was having. I had the X and Y around the wrong way, which is silly, but there we go. Yes, I screwed up and made a mistake. It happens. Get over it. I fixed it. It works now. That's the main thing. Don't worry about if you make a mistake put lots of extra debug commands, as I would call them in. I commented this out here, although I could simply delete it now, but I left it in just to demonstrate. The command len returns the length of whatever you pass it. You could think of this as a function, where you pass in the variable and it returns an integer of the length. In fact, this is an internal function of Python. The next function is to see the field. As the comment says, it doesn't actually clear the fields out, so do not seed a field that has plants in it already or it will overpopulate. Shouldn't be a problem, but I did put this in to remind me in case I need to change it later. Next up, I put a comment starting to do, which is to do in one word in capitals. I do that in one word in the capitals, make it obvious when you look through it and easy to search for later when you need to update. As I say here, it would be nice to allow the user to add where the plants are. There are a few interesting things that fire gliders back and forth and, and lots of things I'll have to explain later about the game of life. So I said, you know, it would be nice to allow people to make their own ones up. I also point out why I reset X and Y to be 1 and not 0. Again, this is to make sure I don't break it later and come back and think, oh shit, it starts at 0, not 1, I should make 0, and then it will break. Because we're not checking for the edges. Now again, it should be fairly simple. Once again, I have a debug line commented out as I, again, had a problem earlier when I was making up the fields. I made a row the correct width and added it to the number of times the height was. The problem with this, though, adding the same row in makes actually the same row go in several times, not just new variables of the same amount, but the very same variable. So when you seed, you end up with almost all plants, and they instantly die out, because each row was the same as the other. So you go through the first one, and you know, no plant, plant, no plant, 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 or whatever, and then by the end, a 30% chance doing 10 times, chances are every single one's going to have a plant in once. This is the not clearing out the field thing, as mentioned earlier. So I printed out what the field was seeded like to show me, and then I realised all the rows were identical, no matter how many times I ran it, and obviously that wasn't right. 
So I looked at that and found that out. Again, printing stuff out is your best friend. If a program is crashing somewhere and it doesn't tell you anything, not even where, which line it was running on it, just you run, it crashes, print one, two, three, four, throughout the code. Run the code, see what number prints out on screen. When it crashes, oh, it's after three. So you look at three and before four and then you add 3.1, 3.2, 3.3 or whatever in, as many as you need, even after every single line if necessary. And then you'll find out this line is crashing it. Then what you can do is take part of that line if you're doing a uh, dividing one variable by another. You print one variable out, then you print the other variable out. Oh, that variable's zero, and that's why it's erroring, because I'm dividing by zero, for example. Printing stuff out on the screen is the best way of debugging really is absolutely brilliant even stuff like Visual Basic or Visual Studio it's got this huge visual thing and you can step through one line at a time one line at a time you can get errors and it can bounce you to another bit of code where your error handling is you can do some sneaky stuff to return but it's not great basically so printing stuff out is always very useful okay Another big comment here explaining how I convert the list into XY coordinates. Again, to explain it to me later to remind me. Hopefully this is self-explanatory, which is the way it should be with comments. Then we have a function to print the field out. First up, it calls the OS.system command with clear to clear the screen. I have no idea if this is going to work under Windows. And I didn't actually put a comment on there saying that, so bad sake. Don't do it again. Then I print the current year out. I did this because it actually proves something is happening. I did have a bug in my program in an earlier version where I was creating the next field and it didn't copy it back over correctly onto the current field. So the same field was printing over and over again. And it sat there and didn't look like it was doing anything because it didn't change the screen. So I added a year and proved it was looping but it wasn't updating the fields. Again, printing stuff out on the screen helps you fix the bugs. Now, we loop around each column and then each row to run through here. Now, I convert the ones and zeros we have in the list to be this weird plant-looking symbol. It's just, it looks prettier than with all the ones and zeros on the screen. The first version I did had just ones and zeros, and it was stuff on the screen all everywhere. So I convert the ones and zeros to space or the plant, depending on, well, the ones become the plant, and there are zeros become the space, of course. This time I did put a comment about different OSs. I have only tried Ubuntu, but it is ASCII, which, if I remember correctly, it stands for American Standard Code for Information Interchange. At least I think that's what it stands for. So it should work on all OSs. As I comment there, we loop through each row and figure out what to print for the entire row before printing that full row out. You see, if you just print each one out on its own, it would print a single plot per line, single one out. So you'd have 100 lines and it would just look terrible, so we do a row at a time. Then we use the time.sleep, the time module I mentioned earlier, to delay for however long we started at the top. Yes, this is the only time we actually set it here, so I could just put it in. However, it is much easier to have it at the top 
so you know where to change it without searching through the entire code. This makes it a lot easier in bigger programs. Now, the final function is grow field, which grows the field according to the rules. This function does actually have more comments than code, because it's a little more confusing. I loop around 3x3 three three square around each plot, as I said earlier. It overcounts if there is a plant in the middle. Look at the code, read the comments and see what you think. This bit of code I actually I think my best code in the whole program. We could remove the overcount we make, but it's easier to ignore it as I do here. It saves down a little bit of calculation. Not necessarily saying it's absolutely fantastic code, I'm just saying it's, I think, my best code that I've done. Now, as I comment, I had a problem here, and I'll explain why I think it didn't work. So I did the code in a different way. Hopefully, that entire function makes sense. The last bit is the main segment, and the entire code without comments is simply make field, seed field, year one, whilst year is less than iterations plus one, grow field, print field, year is year plus one. That's it. It really does actually look a bit like pseudocode that you may have written, which is how it should be. Well, that is the basic game of life. Now I need to read up on how to do some more graphical things to try and make a nice graphical front-end. We can simply change the print field function to do this. So I will try and do that a lot faster than this one. Hopefully a few more weeks we can get something else sorted and I can start recording it again. I will see what other updates I feel like doing for the program also. And then we can start doing some simple version numbering on the code. Also, if there is something specific you would like to see changed in this program... Let me know and I'll see what I can do. This also sort of marks the ends of the Python lessons in a way because I have actually gone through some of the most important parts of it. Don't worry, I will continue this series for a while. However, I will do a focus on writing specific programs to do specific tasks and through that introducing maybe a few more new things but not actually just talking about this is how to do this, this is how to do that, just saying here's a program to do this, and let's go through the code. That way you should be able to see how I would write programs myself, which isn't necessarily the best way, of course, it's just a way. And we'll go through any errors I had, or any big problems I had, like I just did. With that in mind, though, the next episode will almost certainly be another game of life, introducing a few improvements to the system, like reading and writing the fields out to files. I will also try and figure out how to make it more graphical and anything else I think it needs. After that, we will probably be moving on to a password generator by picking three words from a dictionary. Not the most secure password I know, but hopefully a little bit more memorable for some people. Some of you will know I work with a local Cub Scout pack here in town, and they keep forgetting passwords and I keep having to reset them. So hopefully a three-word password will be long enough to prevent brute force attacks, will not be in the dictionary to avoid dictionary attacks, at least the amalgam of all three words won't, and will still be memorable enough that I don't have to spend what seems to be half my life resetting passwords. After that, I'm not really sure. 
I have had a few suggestions from a few people, perhaps as suggested by one of my listeners. We will do a name generator which uses some internet access to make a, a name that sort of sounds like something else. A good example of this is Professor Snape in Harry Potter. Snape sounds a bit like snake. And that ties in with Slytherin. Slytherin, Slytherin, and so on. Well, that's about it for now. Apologies for the lateness of this episode. I could sit and explain how I had immigration to work to do, including being fingerprinted and photographed, or how Mother's Day got in the way, but the simple fact is I could have found the time had I wanted to. Well, I'm beginning to sound like Dave Yates now. Okay, time to end the show. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, you can email me at zocosoro at gmail.com that's x-ray oscar kilo echo sierra oscar romeo uniform at gmail.com or you can visit me at zoke.org x-ray oscar kilo echo period oscar romeo golf and you can give me feedback through there thank you again for your time you've been listening to hacker public radio Thank you for listening to Hack Republic Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.